You're listening to BizCraft, a live podcast about the business of web design with Carl the Jellyfish King Smith and Mean Gene Crawford. and welcome to this edition of BizCraft. Now, I have actually locked Gene Crawford out of the studio today so that I can tell you about the most amazing episode that I've ever enjoyed of BizCraft. It's this one. Today, we have Simon Sinek on to talk about his new book, Leaders Eat Last, and also give us some insights into his groundbreaking TED Talk about the Golden Circle. So turn it up, enjoy, and we'll see you on the next episode of BizCraft. All the best. Hey, everybody, and welcome to BizCraft. Today, we have Mr. Simon Sinek on with us. How's it going, Simon? Fine, thanks. How are you? Doing great. Uh, you know, normally when we're interviewing authors, I have a lot of backstory and things I want to ask about, but having read Leaders Eat Last, I have so many questions. I know we have so much time, so I kind of just want to dig in. <laughs> um, Jump away. Jump in away. Thanks. First of all, you know, you call the book Leaders Eat Last, and you start off with this military story about officers. And, and I was hoping you could just share some of the reason why you chose that title with our listeners. Yeah, sure. It's um, it's sort of a funny story. You know, when with the titling of a book, there's a lot of backwards and forwards with the publisher. And I'm sort of embarrassed by this because I wrote a book about how sort of people come together and how you make great teams. <laughs> and we were doing it over email, and that's a terrible way to do it because all you do is respond in a vacuum. And uh, quite sort of, you know, I was wandering uh, around New York City, and I walked past the publisher's office, and I thought I'd just by and say hi. That's literally what happened. I, I just showed up unannounced, and I sauntered upstairs, um, and we were talking about how we didn't have a title, and we just started telling stories. And I told the story of how I sat down with a Marine Corps general at the Pentagon and was asking him, why is it that the Marines are so much better, uh, you know, so good at what they do? Right. And he said, officers eat last. Hmm. And it's entirely true. Um, if you visit any chow hall on any Marine base anywhere in the world, you will see that the Marines line up for, for food in rank order. The most junior person in the front, the most senior person in the back. Wow. And there's no, there's no, uh, no one tells them they have to. It's not in any rule book. It's, it, it comes out because of the way that they view the concept of leadership. They view leadership not as a rank, but as a responsibility. And they see a leader's role, a leader's job, to look after the person in their charge. And so one of the ways it manifests is, is when they're eating food. It's, it's kind of an amazing thing to watch. So, so that is really insightful because when it started, I, I'm sitting here reading the book thinking, you know, there's a lot of people pushing for flatter, autonomous organizations. You're starting with military, but the way you describe it, it, it it's their job to support everyone. And you even mentioned this in the book. You talk about uh, we're cared for from above, parents or bosses, you know, once we feel safe. So, right. So, so that's dead on. Um, that's, that's the leader's job. That's the leader's job. The leader's job is to lead and protect not have all the answers, not know, you know, not know everything to do, you know, not to micromanage and tell people what to do or how to do it. 
The leader's job is to lead and protect. That's their job. And it's the people within the organization, their job is to get the work done. Right. Now, now this is interesting. You mentioned in the book also uh, how you like the idea of offices without telephones, right? Offices without phones whatsoever. And phones should be more like a smoke break, right? Now, now this is interesting. Well, to me, but Go ahead. Without cell phones, without cell phones. I like the okay. idea of offices without cell phones, yeah. Oh, okay. uh, telephones are fine. Okay. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, if, you, if, if I were to tell you that, if I were to ring a bell, if I'm at your office, and every time I ring the bell, you, like, I get to ring the bell whenever I want. I can ring every minute, I can ring once an hour, I get to ring the bell whenever I want. And every single time I ring the bell, you have to get up and go to the fridge. How much work do you think you're going to get done? Right? right. Now, what do you think your cell phone is? When it's sitting there and every time it buzzes or bings or flashes or beeps, you stop what you're doing and you look. So why would we think that, you know, the distraction of a bell that tells us to go to the fridge? So, so this, this led me to the question. I was just curious. How do you feel about distributed companies? Because when we look at how important it is for us to be together, right, to, to see each other and, and feel that vibe, yet there's a trend towards more and more distribution in terms of a workforce – what do you think about that? So, did you say the virtual company? Yeah, a virtual company, exactly. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a great idea in theory, and it's, and it's sort of one of those things that, you know, when the technology showed up, everybody goes, oh, my goodness, we never have to go to the office anymore. But that, remember, when e-commerce showed up, people thought bricks and mortar stores would go away, but for the fact that people like to go shopping, you know? Right. Um, like, so, I mean, just because the technology exists doesn't mean that, that, that it's necessarily better for us. Yes, absolutely. On occasion, I think telecommuting is amazing. You know, every now and then when you don't need to come or don't want to come to work to be connected, it's fantastic. But as a standard modus operandi, it's really troublesome. And I can tell you, you know, you talk to people who are telecommuters, especially when there is a real office, they always feel a little bit disconnected. They always feel a little right. bit out of the loop. No number of emails or conference calls can ever make somebody feel like they're part of the family. That requires going for lunch together. That requires water cooler talk. That requires saying hi in the hallways. And so when you have an entire virtual company, it, it's a nice idea, but, but it really doesn't create that sense of camaraderie and team, uh, and team ethic that, that being around people and getting to know them does. Right. And we'll often talk about people over pixels. My company is fully distributed. There's, there's no central office. And, and it's one of those things. So if we don't get together a certain number of times a year, if we don't have a joke that we share, if we don't have something that connects us, it would totally fall apart. Exactly. And if you're going to do the virtual thing, then, then relying on email um, is, is really silly. Like, yeah. to, to be really, really prescriptive and, 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 and be really good about getting on the phone as often as possible is much more important if you're going to try that virtual thing. And to your point, to get together as a team on a regular basis throughout the year, it's the best of a bad situation, absolutely. Well, and, you know, you talk a lot about chemical triggers and, and addiction in the book in terms of, like, say, dopamine, right? And, and there is there's yeah. something, there's something about when we get together, and I think it's oxytocin that gets released. When, isn't that the cuddle hormone? Like when you're, when you're hanging out, yeah. everybody lightens up. I mean, everybody feels good. And so, so I, I think that's absolutely so important. Now, now, one thing that I was curious about, in the book, you said we're evolutionarily programmed for hierarchies and we can't get rid of them. And Correct. in our industry, so we're, we're in the web for the most part. 
and people continuously push to be flat. I think flat is a bit of a lie. I don't think you can ever be totally flat, but I, I was curious when you look at a company like Zappos, traditionally a, an amazing innovative culture, but they're trying to become a holacracy. And, and there are all these terms that I don't think we're all using the same definitions for, but, but what do you think about a company like that? That's trying to kind of distribute the hierarchy throughout. Well, I think what they're doing is trying to rebel against the excess amount of formal hierarchy that exists okay. in a large corporation. And, and I think that's a good idea. But, but there's, no, there's no getting away from, there's no getting away from uh, uh, the fact that we are hierarchical animals. Right. Um, so, you know, whenever you take a group of people and put them in a room together and say, hey, I want you guys to figure this out, we will always self-organize into a hierarchy. And Zappos still has hierarchy. I mean, they, they have team leaders and they have groups, you know, and within right. the group they're going to self-organize. You know, I mean, you kind of get away from it. But I, I, I do admire the idea of getting rid of the excessive amount of formal hierarchy. Absolutely. But it's the informal hierarchy that, that you can't you can't escape. Right. A hierarchy that's built to protect the hierarchy is the bad one, right? And But if you have a temporary hierarchy that's there to accomplish a goal, right, then, then that well, makes... I mean, sometimes they're temporary, sometimes they're fixed. I mean, you know, there's there's always alphas in the system, right? Yeah. Um, um, but but yeah, I mean, the, the the way we do it in our little in our little business, even though of course there's a you know a formal hierarchy, you know, you know, there's no getting away from it. Um, right. But the way we treat it is is the person who's running the project is the boss. So we all work. So at some at various on, for various projects, everybody's a boss. Yeah. You know, and everybody's a subordinate. So we, we all have the opportunity to be the alpha, depending on what the project is. Now, it, that makes so much sense. And, and when you're talking in the book, you referenced the Whitehall study. Um, you, you sort of referenced, I think it's Sapolsky who did the research with the baboons. And when you talk about get rid of the alphas, you know, that, that, that story where the alpha males in that baboon troop get wiped out. And, um, and suddenly in one generation, they're living in a more peaceful situation. But we can't just wipe out the alpha males on the planet, I guess. So. And I'm glad yeah. because then... this, is, this is biology. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. So, so one of the other things you bring up the concept of circles of safety, right? Yeah. And and that to me was powerful because the idea that once we know there's we're protected, there's nothing internally that's going to attack us. Then we can prepare. Talk about that for a minute. Sure. Um, you know, ev- almost everything that 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 governs and, and sort of um, human behavior is our pursuit to feel safe. We'd rather sit next to a friend than a stranger at an event. You know, we leave an empty space at the movies so we don't have to sit next to strangers. You know, um, yeah. we, when we see someone who's familiar, you know, we, we go and stand next to them versus standing next to a room full of strangers, even though at the office we may not get along with that person. You know, it, it, it's like almost everything that governs our behavior is the pursuit to feel safe. And that's because we're not very good by ourselves. But in groups, we're remarkable. And so the concept of the circle of safety is when we're amongst people with whom, around whom we feel safe, then we we, we, uh, will organically uh, uh, trust and uh, cooperate and and commit our best skills and efforts to work together to face the dangers outside and seize the opportunities. When we don't feel safe amongst the people with whom we work, we're forced to expend our own time and our own energy protect ourselves from each other, right. which inherently weakens the organization. 
And you make the point that we can only biologically know 150 people. So right. this, this concept that I think you said, uh, you may say you care about everyone on the planet, but you don't, right? We have to trust and empower yeah. the people we know to trust and empower the people we know and so on. So Exactly. Yeah, so, it, so it, according to Robin Dunbar, who's a, who's a, a British uh, uh, social scientist, um, he, he's the one who theorized, and accurately so, um, that we cannot maintain more than about 150 close relationships. And the right. reason is, very logical, which is time is a limitation. If we only gave two minutes to everybody, we wouldn't have close relationships. Um, and the other thing is brain capacity. We can't remember everybody. <laughs> That's why Dunbar's number is about 150, because some people can remember more and some people remember fewer. Right. So we can maintain about 150 relationships, close relationships. And the funny thing is, is when we, when social media started to show up, they thought that um, Dunbar's number would be rendered obsolete because you know now you can be friends with 600 people, you know, on Facebook. And what they found was it, that Dunbar's number uh, is alive and well that when you go through your 600 friends on Facebook, either you don't remember who they all are or they don't remember who you are. So it actually, it actually, it actually panned out to be about 150 of the people you actually maintain close relationships, even, even online. Um, and so if you have organizations that get larger than that, then that is the reason for hierarchy. Um, because as you said, you have to trust somebody who trusts somebody who trusts somebody who trusts somebody who trusts somebody. You know, there's the CEO of a multi, you know, a billion dollar corporation doesn't know the frontline employee. And so they have to trust their layer of management, who trust their layer of management, or let's call them leadership, who trust their layer of leadership, who eventually trust the person at the front line. And, and that, that is effective bureaucracy. That works perfectly fine and well, but it's based on each leader committing to and trusting uh, their people. And right now, in, in corporate America and possibly around the world, it, we're seeing these things. Like you mentioned, layoffs is a new idea, and that, that – yeah. Leaders of companies aren't necessarily bad. They're just part of a long process that got us here. So, so how, do we, how do we reverse this, right? Like, like, how do we get to a point where people are trusting the people around them? Well, well this is what it means to be a leader, right? Leadership right. is a choice. It's not a rank. It's a choice. I know many people who are at the top of their organization who have authority. We have to do what they say because they have authority on us, but they're not leaders. We wouldn't follow them, right? right? So they may be at the top of the company, but they're not leaders. And I know plenty of people who are on the lower levels of an organization who absolutely are leaders, even though they don't have as much authority. Leadership is a choice to protect the person to the left of us and protect the person to the right of us. And sometimes that may come at a cost. It may cost us our, our benefits. It may cost us our comfort. It may sometimes cost us, you know, our perks, whatever it is, uh, credit. Um, and so, when you say what's the first thing we have to do to change this cycle that we're in, well, we need more leaders, right? We need people to right. take the risk, to have the courage to trust someone. I know so many leaders who say, I can't trust my people until they trust me. Well, <laughs> that's not how it works. That's not how it works. You know, the leader has to take the risk to trust the people, and in response, the people will trust the leader. I mean, right. just think about it. We've all flown on an airline where the gate agents treat us like dirt, Right. And I've had the experience where I was being treated like cattle, and I actually said to the gate agent, why do you have to treat us like that? Why can't you treat us like human beings? And she literally said to me, sir, I'm sorry. If I don't follow the rules, I could get in trouble or lose my job, right? Basically, what she's saying to me is she fears her leaders. 
That's basically right. what she's saying to me, right? When we fly Southwest Airlines, the reason they treat us so well is because they don't fear their leaders. But it was the leaders who had to take the risk to trust that their people know what to do. And in return, the way that those employees reward that trust is by treating everybody else nicely. Trust filters down just like mud rolls down a hill. You know, treat people badly, they treat customers badly. Treat people well, they treat customers well. It's really not a magical formula. And everything about abstractions versus tangible things plays into that, right? It's, you mentioned this in the book. 100%. And that to me is so powerful that we have to, we have to put down the rule books, we have to put down the cell phones, we have to put down all these things and realize there's a human being in front of us. Right, right. You know, when you go out to dinner with your friends, turning the phone upside down, you know, face down and leaving it on the table, that doesn't make it more polite. You know, when there's, a phone, when there's a phone on the table, the subconscious mind of the other person reads that is, the way you read that is, I'm not the most important thing in the world right now. That's what we're telling our friends. That's what we're telling our potential business partners and associates and clients and vendors. When we show up for dinners or lunches, we put our phones on the table. What we're saying is, I don't think you're the most important thing to me right now. Right? When we have dinner with our families and we pull the phones out, even if we don't pull them out, just having them on the table. So the simple act of putting the phone away when we're with somebody has an incredible subconscious uh, impact. It says to the person, you're the most important thing to me right now. And they can feel it. They can feel it. You know, one thing that gives me hope is my 10-year-old is the one who says, can we leave our cars and the phone when we go out to dinner? You know, and it's nice yeah, to yeah. think that that generation would get it because, because when you see that warm glow coming from underneath the table, you know, somebody's trying to hide it. It's like, it is an addiction, right? I mean, like you said. Sure. So if, if we continue down this course without changing, I mean, what is it that you see coming? So... You know, this is not some sort of, this is not some old man reminiscing of, you know, olden days. You know, this is not some nostalgic, you know, you know, journey down, you know, memory lane of, you know, when I was your age. It's not, it's not what this is about. This is pretty simple biology. We know that we get a dopamine hit from when our phone goes bing or buzz or beep or flash or whatever it is, right? And dopamine is responsible for that feeling that instant gratification that we get. It's the same chemical responsible for uh, when we gamble, uh, when we drink, um, you know, the, these, when we win something, you know, that sense of like instant gratification, we get that from our phones. Now, it doesn't mean cell phones are bad. Like, it doesn't mean alcohol or gambling are bad. However, they have addictive qualities, and they can go out of balance if not kept in check. Um, and so we can become addicted uh, to our cell phone. Uh, like I said, it is a dopamine addiction. It's not some old man saying, you know, this is dangerous. There are addictive qualities. And the problem is, is as a society, which is we haven't recognized we have a problem. And that's the first step of the 12-step program, right? We have to recognize right. we have a problem. Um, and, and we don't. And it's amazing to me. I, I mean, I, I go to restaurants and I see people on dates and they both have their phones out. Or I see a bunch of, you know, young people out and they all have their phones out or parents are out with their kids and have their phones on the table. This is addiction. Like, who are you calling? You're with your friends. Who do you need to text right now? You're with the people you love, supposedly. You know? 
this this is a sign of an unbalanced, an unhealthy use of the technology. And the problem is, is like any addiction, in time, we start to waste our resources, we start to waste time, and we start to destroy our relationships. We're starting to see increased rates of, of, of depression and suicide, and school shootings are on the rise. In the 1960s, there was one. In the 1980s, 27. In the 1990s, 58. Uh. In the past 10 years, there have been over 100 school shootings. 70% of them committed by kids born after 1980, most of them 15 years old. All of them uh, had suffered mental problems, of course. What created those mental problems? sense of isolation. Many of them reliant on online uh, relationships and had weak real relationships. In other words, we're seeing increases of antisocial behavior as we've seen introductions of more and more social media and addictive quality of the cell phone. And if we don't do something about it actively, it's going to get worse and worse and worse. And my prediction is you're going to start to see unbelievable levels of suicide. You're going to start to see increased levels of depression and addiction to prescription drugs. We already know that amongst boomers, that suicide, more boomers die from suicide now than die in car accidents. Wow. The CDC conducted a study a few months ago, right? More baby boomers die of suicide than car accidents now, right? Wow. In other words, I'm not saying it's only cell phones as the cause of that, but they're definitely they're, they're definitely a part of it. And this youngest generation is the most addictive. So, so there, there's so many things going in my head right now as you say that. One is, you know, this kind of gets back to having a bad boss is better than having a boss that's forgotten you, right? You said that, like, people are less likely to leave the job if there's a bad boss because they at least know that they're being paid attention to. And, and this relates, I guess, in, in a lot of ways to the, the, you, the youth that are coming up and, and all of us, you know, that feeling of being forgotten. Yeah. I, I think uh, in the book Examine Life, um, Stephen Gross, I think, he, he has this theory that people would rather be paranoid because being uh, targeted or tormented feels better than being forgotten. And uh, I don't know, it just, it just relates so much here. Uh, do, you, do you think when people are reading the book, I, I mean, have you gotten any signs that, that people are, are getting your message or heeding your warning? I, I think so. I mean, what, it's, still, it's still a new message. It's only been out, you know, a couple months, right? Right. One of the things that I've noticed, like when I would, when I used to do the start with why talk, you know, and I had questions at the end, people would raise their hands immediately. And now right. when I give the leader the last talk, there's like nobody raises their hands. <laughs> and when I, when I first started giving the talk, I was like, oh no, they, they don't like it. <laughs> you know? Right. But what, I, what I've learned, what I've learned is it's, 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 uh, it's that these messages hit hard and that people are relating them to their lives. And sometimes it's a hard pill to swallow because we see it in our kids, we see it in our friends, and we see it in ourselves. And so it, it, it takes a little time for people to digest. So yes, the message seems to be landing. The question is, will we adjust our behavior? It's very, very hard. You know, I've tried myself. Uh, right. When I go out with my friends, I give them my phone. So I don't even have the temptation. Like an alcoholic gets rid of all the alcohol in their house. They just remove the temptation, you know? Right. Uh, it's not. It's not about willpower, you know. You don't have to have willpower. Just get rid of the damn thing. So I give my phone to my friends when I go out with them, so I, I don't even have the opportunity. You know, when when your friend goes to the bathroom when you're out to dinner, so just whip the phone out. You know, <laughs> we do. Wait, God forbid we should waste three minutes and look around. And guess where big ideas come from? Big ideas come from observation. 
people sit there patiently listening to the speaker, and as soon as the speaker's done, everybody whips their phone out. Well, the value of the conference isn't the idiots on the stage like me. The value of the conference is the relationships you'll make with the people who are at the conference. Right. But we don't. We don't. God forbid we should miss an email for one hour, you know? Right. So mm. we, we are our own worst enemies, and we are our own best hope. If you go to a conference, if you have to take your phone down to the sessions with you, just turn it off and leave it in your pocket the entire time and use the brakes to meet people. Because when anything bad happens, it's the people you met that you'll call up and ask for help. Or when there's an <laughs> opportunity that hasn't, you know. I mean, but if you're right. just listening to speakers and sending emails, guess what? You're actually weakening, weakening your own network. That's the joke. That's the joke. We're hurting ourselves. Wow. Simon, thank you so much. And, uh, you know, I, I'm excited for our listeners to, to get this message and see what they do with it. And, and I will tell you, I spend most of my day in airplane mode. I think that's my methadone because um, <laughs> it feels like it's on. Right. But uh, yeah, I, I, I just can't thank you enough for uh, for giving us the time. And we will be giving away copies of uh Leaders eat last to our audience um, so that they can all uh, get, you know, a little bit educated. Really appreciate your time today. Well, I really appreciate you helping me spread the message, and I hope that your listeners become the leaders they wish they had. Perfect. Thanks, Simon. Thanks so much. <laughs>